lot of parts, a lot of people were working hard, but I felt like, man, if I take my hand off of this crank, um, it's not going to go anywhere anymore because a lot of things were like my strategic plan and programs and ideas and initiatives that I was trying to get people to do, a lot of you guys to do, like war room and stuff. And then now I look at our church um, almost two years later, and I feel like it's gone from this machine to a living organism where there's just like branches sprouting from different parts of our, our community, and you have taken... It has kind of taken a life of its own. Like, I think about Arden starting the basketball ministry just by himself. You know, I told him I wasn't going to give him any more money, and I ended up giving him a little bit. And uh, so many of you guys are blessed by that. But it's out of his vision and love for basketball and God that he wanted to put that together. And I think about Daniel leading our special needs ministry and so many of you guys coming around him and, you know, the Ching family putting legs to that. And then I think about Laundry Love, where we pay for people's laundry, you know, our apartment complex, the school. And there's just so much that God has just kind of um, given life to through you guys. And I'm just kind of like, I'm still here, but I don't feel like it's this machine that I'm running. It feels like this tree that's just sprouting, and there's life outside of me in this community. Um, like, even our relationships aren't based around a few people, but there's so many of you guys who are hanging out and hosting people. Like, Jubilee did a house party while the young adults went to the beach for a bonfire, and uh, Donna watched Born Identity with some of you guys. It's just like uh, Pokemon catching every day. And so... Uh, I just feel like this has such been such an amazing um, season of our church, and we've been able to love each other and love the world and do it in this really organic, like, unprogrammed way. So I'm just really thankful. Uh, as we go through our summer series, we are going through the book of the... Um, oh, what happened there? Um, no announcements. Can we go to the... Thanks. Oh, but there is a connection table in the back. So if you're here for the first time and you're trying to get more plugged in, we'd love for you to just stop by, give us your contact information. I know it's really scary to come to a church when you don't know anyone. I've actually like heard conversations about how frightening it is. So, um, you know, kudos for showing up. I, I went to three churches when I missed, uh, when I was on my little vacation, and I just sat, I'm a pastor, right? But I'm like sitting there in a chair like, oh man, I don't know anybody. Hope someone comes and talks to me. And so thanks for coming out. I know you're scared. Um, there's a table in the back, which somehow will make you less scared. Um, we're going through the Bible, and we are... Oh, I messed something up. Can you help me? I don't even see... Oh, yes, good. Very good. Very good. All right. Uh, we're working through the Bible this summer, and um, we are at the end of the Old Testament, and we're trying to understand the Bible as more than like a Google, you know, search engine or like open the page, point to a verse and have it tell us who to date, right? It's, it's this big story that God's unfolding. It starts with Adam and Eve and how God made everything perfect, but we chose to rebel against him and sin. And um, this perfect union with him and each other and the earth and purpose uh, just imploded and we start to have divides in all those areas. But God doesn't give up on us. He continues to redeem us. And that fir the first part of that process is with um, Abraham. He promises Abraham a nation. And he says, out of your lineage, I'm going to have this nation where I bless 
and through you and your descendants, your nation will bless all these other nations. So a big part of God's redemptive plan was to have this chosen people where he's going to reign and rule, and all the people around them will, will gather around this nation to find God. Because it will be a unique nation. It will be impenetrable. It will be ruled with justice. It will be merciful. People will know um, each other and know the living God. And from Abraham, he has a kid, Isaac, who has Jacob, who has Joseph. And God reinstates his promise and continues to make covenant with all of these patriarchs of Israel. And then we uh, have them in Egypt for 400 years through the story of Joseph and the famine and Pharaoh. And then they get put into slavery, and then Moses brings brings them out of slavery. They're on Mount Sinai, and now they're going from a group of slaves, from a tribe to a nation. And this nation was going to be ruled by a specific set of laws and by by God. And in, in this covenant with Moses, just like he made with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, he makes this another, uh, he reinstates this covenant with this whole nation. I'm going to be your God, and you're going to be my people. And the first thing he says is, you're going to love me with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You're not going to serve any other idols. It's very similar to a marriage covenant, right? It's very similar to me getting married to Nina, and part of it's like, hey, forsaking all others, I commit myself only to you. I'm not going to go and date any other girls. I'm not going to go and pursue another wife. You're it for the rest of my life. And that's what Israel was saying to God. I'm not going to pursue any other gods. You're it for our nation. And God's making a covenant to his people. I'm going to love you. I'm going to protect you. You're going to be a chosen nation. You're going to be blessed. And they make this intimate, um, long-lasting covenant with each other. And then we move into uh, Israel taking land, setting up kings. And there's kind of these brief moments in history where Israel is living out their calling with King David and Solomon. Solomon builds this temple, and their, their land and their nation at the time is so prosperous that there's just like gold laying on the floor. No one's bothering to pick it up because it's, they're so wealthy, right? Can you imagine us, you know, uh, being such a wealthy nation that there's like a $100 bill, and it's like... Uh, feeling lazy, I'm just going to walk by it. <laughs> you know, like that's the kind of wealth they were experiencing. And then all these surrounding countries would send rulers and wise men and even the kings and queens would go into Jerusalem to sit down with Solomon to learn about Yahweh, this God, to learn about his laws and his commandments. In his temple was the presence of God. Moses, uh, David, one, Solomon's father brought this, the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem and he's dancing before it and he starts to take off his kingly robes until he's just in his undergarments, which is what slaves would wear, servants would wear, and he's saying, man, like, God is the true king and I'm just one of his servants to worship, to bow down before him. And when God filled the temple as Solomon erected it out of the ground, it was the sense that God is here and we get to interact with him in a very real and tangible way. And if you were a foreigner and you're like, where's God? You could point to that space and they would walk up to it and feel the weight 
of his love, of his peace, of his joy, of his presence. But the sad thing that is that most of Israel's history wasn't defined by them being this light in the middle of the world. They often compromised and fell into adultery, worshiping other idols and giving themselves to sin. And so right after Solomon, a few kings later, they split the nation. This king decides instead of to, to treat the other tribes as brothers, he treats them as slaves. They rebel, and Israel has their own nation, the northern kingdom, ruled by their sets of kings. And Judah has its own nation, the southern kingdom, ruled by their set of kings. And both of these kingdoms have a strong stop where because of their rebellion against God and worshiping other idols, they get scattered into exile. The northern kingdom in Assyria, the southern kingdom to Babylon. And throughout the Old Testament, we, just, we have this cycle. Instead of living purposefully, instead of fulfilling the calling that God had for them to be this nation that blesses other nations, instead they have the good times where God's blessing them and they're prosperous, and then they start forsaking God and worshiping idols. This is like literally the cycle of judges. The whole book revolves around the cycle, but it extends into Kings and Chronicles, even into the exile. After the good times, they forsake God and worship idols. Then they're, um, they're disciplined, or the, the sin itself takes them into slavery. In their slavery, they uh, suffer and repent. God, they call to God. He delivers them. They're good times, but then in the good times, they go after idols. And then, again, they go into slavery. They repent. They're delivered. And then there's good times again, but then they forsake God and worship idols. And I hope that in our frustration with the Israelites, as you read the Old Testament, you know, I remember just being like, you're so dumb. <laughs> you know, like, generations of you are dumb. And then I look at my own life, and I'm like, dude, that's like me. And that's all of us, isn't it? That in the good times, it's so easy to forget God and to make our own idols. And then we see sin start to suck the life out of us and demand more and put us in shackles. And then we return back to God, and he delivers us, and it's good, but then we forget about him. So this whole thing is really a mirror of just kind of the human cycle of, of our lives and wondering how do we live apart from the cycle. Well, I'm just going to spend a little bit of time to go through a few episodes. So first, judges, we'll talk about that cycle here. There, then we're going to drop down to an individual in Judea, a king who goes through that cycle. Then we're going to talk about kind of this massive timeline and how Israel itself is in that cycle throughout the span of like 1,500 years. And then we're going to talk about Hosea, and we're going to look at the cycle internally in the heart of God as opposed to through historical events. And um, four hours later, you'll go home, and you'll be all really excited to go home. All right, so in Judges, this is right after like, Israel claims territory and all that. We see, um, and before they have kings, this is like 1,500 BC. We see them forget God. Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and kind of notice the gods that they're serving, pretty much anyone else. This is a violation of their covenant, a voluntary covenant that they've entered in with God. And he's, they start cheating on him, basically, especially with the Amorites and the Philistines. And then because the, the Israelites forsook the Lord, 
and no longer served him. Oh, no. Oh, he became angry. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, yes. Okay, he became angry with them and sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Amor Amorites. Now, I think the interesting thing here is that the gods and the idols that we serve, that we give our lives to, are the same ones that then enslave us, right? They were serving the, the gods of these nations, and then he, gave, he let them go. They were sold into their hands, and these people with their gods, they scattered them, they crushed them for 18 years, they oppressed them, and then they were going to go back and continue to abuse him, and Israel was in great distress. And I wonder if you've gone far enough in your Christian life where you understand that it's the very things that you pursue outside of God that crush you and enslave you. That if you're focused on your career or job, and, and you know, at first you get promotions, and then you start to neglect your wife, and you work 14-hour shifts, and your kids don't know who you are, and your health starts to diminish, it enslaves you. If your God is your body and looking a certain way, you know, you get obsessed over some people on Instagram that you follow, and then you look at yourself instead of with more beauty and value, that same desire for beauty makes you feel less beautiful. And then people have gone into anorexia and bulimia in order, in, in, and they're enslaved. Or maybe it's your boyfriend or girlfriend or your husband, or your children, that, that that's all you're focused on. That's what you care about most. That's what you will believe will make you most happy. And then you start to compromise who you are and, and what your calling is and what you truly follow for that person. They become scattered. They, they become crushed. They become distressed from the very idols that they ran after. And man, yep, that's my life. <laughs> I've never felt good about a sin after I did it, especially for a certain amount of time, right? I always ended with, this sucks. I've lost a lot. Uh, this sucks. Then the Israelites, so uh, forgetting God, enslaving, and then repenting, hopefully at some point, 18 years later, uh, they called to the Lord, and they said, we sinned against you, forsaking our God, and serving Baals, which is, Baals is kind of like any other God. It's just kind of swept into one generic term. And then the Lord replied, like, when all of these countries were oppressing you, didn't you cry out for help? And I saved you. But even after that, you forsake me, and you serve these other gods that were trying to oppress you. Uh, so I will no longer save you. Go and cry out to the gods you have chosen. Let them save you when you are in trouble. The Israelites said to the Lord, we have sinned. Do with us whatever you think is best, but please rescue us. Then they got rid of the foreign gods among them and served the Lord. And I love these one-liners, and it happens like a thousand times in the Old Testament because they repent over and over again. But these one-liners all have like a little bit of a different characteristic. It says, he could bear Israel's misery no longer. That when God saw his people repent, 
It's like a, a parent with a child. When you're disciplining your kid and he's throwing a tantrum and you throw him in their room, it's not like the parent then is like, oh, finally they're gone. Let's watch Netflix. You know, like, let's just Netflix. It's like their, their hearts are, are distressed and the same misery that their child is bearing, whether it's because of the consequence of their sin or because of discipline, the parent bears as well. And you see God, while his kids are running away from him enslaved, he bears the same misery that they are bearing. Then he sends this judge, he fights the Amorites, and the Lord gives them into his hands. All right, Um, maybe like a thousand years later, 900 maybe, we have this other king, he's ruling the southern kingdom, and we see the same cycle, and I could point to like a hundred examples, but then it'd be 14 hours instead of four, and he forgets God, he does evil in the eyes of the Lord, and he takes on the detestable practices of other nations, and he does this like really hardcore thing where, you know this temple that sits in Jerusalem that uh, Solomon built, on it is inscribed my name will remain in Jerusalem forever. It's kind of saying, like, I am the God who rules here. And all these other nations go in, and they know that this is the one God who rules over them. Well, in that temple, he brings all these other I- idols and altars, and he says, and all these other gods. You know, it's like, if it was a marriage, it'd be like, not only am I cheating on Nina, but I'm having my girlfriends or otherwise live with us. And that's basically what um, this king has done. He, it'd be like me bringing like a Buddhist statue and all these other religions, Hindu uh, gods, and saying, hey, let's worship the Lord, and then let's take communion. But on the communion table, you'll see a Buddhist statue, and please take out your incense and bow to that. And then after that, please move to the corner and, and bow, bow to um, the, Muslim, the Hindu statues, and then we're going to reconvene. That's basically what this king is doing. And then it gets worse, Right? Worshiping other idols isn't just about this outward ritualistic expression. He started sacrificing his kids in fire, which is a pretty common way of worship. Um, And then he goes into just straight demonism, witchcraft, deviation, saw almonds. Uh, Necromancers are actually in the Bible in another version, which is really interesting. Um, It's like consulting the dead. All right. So he does all these things. God's upset. And look at what God does first. He sent, he sent prophets and he spoke to this king and his people, right? Manessa. He spoke to him. And then when they didn't listen, he brought commanders of the king of Assyria. They took him to prison, put a hook in his nose. That doesn't sound fun. Bound him with bronze shackles and took him to Babylon. I think um, when we go into the slavery mentality, this discipline mentality, one of the best things you can do as a Christian is to repent quickly. And think about it as, a, again, a parent and child relationship, right? A child is sinning or doing something destructive, running into the street um, while cars are passing by, trying to touch fire. And there's like real consequences to these things, right? Punching your sister, there's w- real consequences. There's a real pain involved in these things. And sometimes the pain, the greatest pain, is that our character starts to change. I remember I stole like, this thing from a teacher, and my friend told on me, and, and then he started crying because he felt bad telling on me, but he says, I don't want you 
to be a thief and go to prison when you grow up, you know? <laughs> and isn't that true? Like, the great, one of the greatest consequences of our sin, if we're not disciplined, is that it doesn't become an external event. It becomes part of who we are. And so what a good parent does is they give you the pain before the pain. There's a pain of discipline, a slap on the wrist, a yank on the shoulder, yelling, don't run into the street. And that pain is supposed to prevent you from the real pain. And hopefully, at your, and, and a good parent is trying to just have the pain be right above this line of repentance. And so maybe you have a good kid where, like, you just look at them and you're like, come on. And they're like, oh, I'm so sorry. You know, like, there's kids like that. They're real. And um, I know it's not yours, but there's real kids that will feel bad right away. And then there's other kids where you're looking at them, nothing happens. You yell at them, nothing happens. And, like, you're, like, putting them in a straitjacket, you know, and they're still trying to roll over to their sin, right? And um, the pain of dis- discipline, if you're a good parent, has to escalate with this point of repentance. It ha- you ha- unless you're just going to let them, you know, run into the street or get a second-degree burn. And so I look at the Old Testament, and there's a lot of times where I'm, like, looking at this passage, like, and God swallowed them with the earth, and God sent snakes to bite them, and God sold them into slavery. I'm, like, complaining to God, like, dude, that's pretty harsh, you know? Like, you just mass-executed, like, a thousand people. But he... You know, I remember just having this really cool conversation as I was reading the text with with the Lord, and he's like, trust me, my discipline started here with the prophet who said, repent. Another prophet who said, repent. Another prophet who said, repent or else. And they killed this guy and killed this guy and killed this guy. And then it was plagues, and they didn't repent. And then just continued to escalate. And I wonder in our lives, like, man, I, I really hope, like, one of your best attributes as a Christian can be repent quickly. And you can be in this relationship that every parent enjoys, right? The worst part of parenting is discipline. The best part of it is being able to enjoy your kids, help them into their potential, you know, just play with them. And that's what God wants to do with us. But if we're constantly rebelling, he has to... As a loving father, he continues to up the discipline. And sometimes we're like, and then I think, I don't know. I think the saddest thing is to see a parent just truly give up on their child and say, we're done. Like, I have no more tools on my belt. Go get your second degree burn and ran over by a car, right? God pursues us so hard, even to the point of dramatic discipline, so that this nation isn't scattered forever worshiping other gods. He always desires repentance. And this king repents. Even after sacrificing children, turning a whole nation away from God, putting idols in the very temple that was hardcore sacred, if you read temple-like rituals of what it meant to be holy. Anyways, after, you know, being fish-hooked in his nose. He's in great distress. He sought the favor of the Lord, his God, and humbled himself greatly before the God of his ancestors. And then rescue, repentance and rescue. And when he had prayed to him, these one-liners, they get me, man. The Lord was moved by his entry and listened, it listened to his plea. So he brought him back to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. Then Manasseh 
knew the Lord is God. And the rest of his um, story is pretty cool. He, he gets rid of all these temple uh, idols in the temple. He follows the Lord. He turns the nation back to him. So we see this in Judges. We see this a thousand years later, uh, a little less than a thousand years later in this king. But then with Hosea, um, we see this in the whole kind of arc of Israel. You know, they had really good times with David and Solomon. And then we have these kings, probably 80% of them does evil in the eyes of God and worships idols. And then literally they go into slavery. They go into exile. This is where, like, Daniel happens. He's, he's, like, thrown into the courts. I mean, exile means that they're pulled away from Jerusalem and Israel and literally replanted into Babylon and Assyria. Uh, and uh, Esther's here. Daniel's here in these exile books, uh, kind of how the Old Testament finishes. But then as they repent, um, God has um, Nehemiah rebuild the walls. And then um, and, uh, Jerusalem is decreed, and then also the temple is rebuilt. And then again, God restores this nation. Now, Hosea is a really cool book because it kind of summarizes that big arc of Israel. And how Hosea is set up is that God has, what time is it, anybody? <laughs> Four hours yet? No? Huh? 11.20. Oh, I'm doing really good on time. All right, I'm proud of myself. Um, hope you brought your notebook, though. Okay, so Hosea, he is, there's all these, so we looked at these two, maybe three cycles, but Hosea, he sets it up where he's speaking directly from the heart of God as these cycles are going on. So you're not looking at it from a historical perspective or from the perspective of a king or a nation. You're looking at it from the lens of God. Isn't that powerful? That's what the book's, of the prophets do. They speak verbatim, almost, what God is saying through them. And it's all his words. There's not a lot of narrative. It's just God speaking to his people. And it's set up where Hosea is this prophet, and God says, hey, go marry this, pro- this city prostitute. He's like, okay. And so he asks her to get married. But I think they actually fall in love. I think he cares for her deeply. And um, they have kids together. And then she abandons him and starts to just walk away and sleep with all these other guys again like she had when she was a prostitute. And at that place, God tells Hosea, speak to my people because we were married. We made this covenant to be faithful to each other. It wasn't, I didn't force them into it. You know, they said, that I would be their God, right? Isn't that how each of us became Christians, the ones who have? If you haven't made that decision yet, it's okay. You're not bound to God yet. Uh, you, you get to make that decision. But others of us, we've said that we will follow Jesus. We said that you are my God. I'm not going to worship anything else. And that's the kind of covenant that God is referring to, this, this marriage covenant. And so he uses, um, next slide, hopefully. I don't want to press too many buttons here. Okay. Um, Is that working? (laughs) No, back. All right. So he uses uh, Gomer as an illustration for Israel, and he calls her a whore many times. 
Um, plead with your mother. Plead for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. She put a, that she would put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. So God is accusing Israel rightly of committing adultery against him. And he uses very vivid sexual innuendos or expressions throughout all, a lot of the prophets. One of them, he tells Israel, like, please close your legs. He's, he describes her as this prostitute under a tree with her legs open, just ready to have sex with anyone. And similarly, you know, he uses the same type of language. And I think what's important here is that we, when we think about God in relationship to our sin and, and running after other things, I think for a long time, I just saw God as like having this plastic permanent smile with his hands open. And just like, no matter what I did, if I sinned, if I, if I cursed at him, if I, if I was mean to my wife or went to pornography for three days, he would just be like, come on home. But that's not a real person. You know what I'm saying? That's not like a real relationship. His love for us is really deep. And when you love someone deeply, you get cut deeply. If, if you don't, if, if he just had that plastic smile, it probably meant he, it probably would mean he didn't really love us, right? I really love Nina. And if she cheated on me, I would feel all of these things. I would feel extremely upset and angry. I would go through all the stages of grieving. You know, I would, I would be sad. And that's where we see God having this crazy, dynamic relationship with us. It's not plastic. It's him being really upset as they forsake him, as they worship other idols to God. It's like, I was the person you're supposed to love, and you've committed adultery against me. And then we see the slavery he says, I will strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born. I'll make her like a wilderness and make her like a parched land and kill her with thirst. Upon her children also I will have no mercy because they are children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore. She, ha she who conceived them has acted shamefully. And so God just kind of gives her over to um, her sin, to her adulterers. Um, Gomer just runs after her lovers. But there's this idea that, man, when we really go after our, our sin, they leave us thirsty. They don't fulfill us. They leave us, um, they leave us in the wilderness. We're lost. They leave us perched and dry as, as if we're in a desert. They leave us naked and shameful and stranded. And then, just as he's calling them into repentance, he continues to pursue Israel. He continues to ask um, Go, uh, Hosea to pursue Gomer. He said, she shall love her, pursue her lovers and not overtake them. She shall seek them and not find them. Then she will say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. And I wonder if you've if you've been able to come to that point, um, and I hope that point comes faster as you mature in the Lord, 
that you will look at your sin and see its emptiness. You will look at your sin and say, what it's really promising, it's not giving to me. In fact, I'm a slave, and it was better to serve the Lord. And then you have this like crazy beautiful love poem through the anger, through the sadness. As the nation of Israel repents, as we come back to God over and over again, he says, therefore I will allure her and bring her to the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. There I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of anchor a door of hope. And there she will answer as in the days of her youth, as in the time when she first came out of the land of Egypt. He's saying, I'm going to pull her away from all these distractions, from all these other lovers. I go on a, like a retreat with her, where it's just me and her. I'm going to speak tenderly to her. I'm going to woo her back. I'm going to remind her of our, our first date when we went out of Egypt together. I'm going to remind her of when she first fell in love with me at that retreat, the first time she felt me tingle through her spine in worship, the first time he knew I answered his prayer. I'm going to bring him, I'm going to bring her back into those first moments. And on that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband and no longer call me my Baal. One of the worst things you could do to your wife and husband is call them by their like ex's name, right? He's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to remove the names of Baal from her mouth, and she will remember, she shall be remembered by name, and they shall be remembered by name no more. I'll make with her a covenant on that day. And he talks about that covenant being in front of all creation. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. You shall know the Lord. So his love is consistent throughout our sin. It gets violent, his love, out of justice. It mourns for us. But when we repent and come back to him, he holds us. And he receives us. And it's incredible because I, I think about Nina cheating on me. And I don't know if I could do this. And when, when I hypothetically cheat on her in, in our conversations, I know she, she's saying she was not going to do this. But God, he does this for us over and over again. But it's not without sorrow. It's not without anger. It's not without discipline. It's a dynamic relationship. And yet, if we repent and come back to him, he loves us. You know, there's this last scene in this book, Hosea, after... She cheats on him with all these other men. You know, she, I imagine her becoming older and ugly and used. And these men start just abandoning her. And finally, one of them takes her as a sex slave. And then she can't even do that. So she, he puts her for sale in front of everyone, just whoever's going to buy her. She's used up. And at that point, God calls Hosea back or uh, Gomer uh, Hosea back, and he stands in, in the midst of the crowd. He sees his wife up there, just completely ashamed. And as they're auctioning her off, he says, I will buy her. 
I'll take her home. And he doesn't pay a little bit. He pays a lot for her. And she comes back to him. And that's the gospel. That's our God. He's willing to always buy us again. And he buys us the big, the ultimate time with the cross, right? He says, I'm going to buy you out of your sin by sending my son to die for you. I wonder if today we could just say, man, God, I don't want to live in this cycle. I want to live um, in a place where I feel your peace and joy, in a place where I get to live out my purpose as opposed to Israel, in a place where people are drawn to you because they see you rule and reign in my life, because they see my willingness to follow you. I hope for that for you. I hope for that for Renew. And I think the two things that have helped me, I don't do this perfectly. Trust me, I've, I've been in this merry-go-round, and I still go on it. You know, like, I'm like, I do well, and I'm like, maybe that idol is still good. <laughs> I've, only used, I've only been abused and, and used like 10 times. Maybe the 11th, he'll treat me right. So I get it, right? But the things that have helped me, two things. Uh, if you want to try to not forsake God as often, and not go into slavery as often. Um, the first thing I do is just called the simple prayer Richard Foster talks about in his book, where I just present myself to God. And I'm like, God, this is me, um, where I am right now. I'm not putting on a facade. I'm not trying to be more spiritual than I am. I'm not introing my prayer with a worship song. Here I am, as is. Uh, I'm tired. I'm angry with Nina. I'm bitter at this person. I'm feeling prideful about church. Um, man, I'm having a great time playing volleyball. Uh, I'm so thankful for my child. Wherever I am, I just kind of present myself to God, the good and the bad. And then the second thing I learned, um, and it came out of journaling and listening to God again, he just kind of said this one line. It's really, it's really shifted the way I do my time with him. He said, what if every moment was about receiving my love? Because at the end of the day, we love God because he first loved me. Right? He first loved you. We don't love God out of our will or strength or discipline. We love God because we've understood how much he loves us, and our, res- our love is a response to his love. And so I just try to stop in the middle of the day, different times, present myself to the Lord, and say, in this moment, God, you love me. And it's not plastic Jesus with his arms open. It's a dynamic relationship, but you love me. And I pray that in this moment, I would receive your love. Whether I'm in the middle of my sin, whether I'm in slavery, whether it's the good times, whether these other idols are looking attractive, whether you're in the middle of delivering me, God, I love you. Wait, God, you love me. Help me to see that. This morning um, at the communion table and in our um, big group, We did this little, like, art response where we took trash, you know, things that were discarded, and we started creating with it um, crosses and other things that represented life in our our lives. And that's what we have displayed here. And I think that for some of us, we just feel like our life is kind of trashed right now. And we need to be reminded that God is a God who faithfully, consistently delivers us, redeems us, 
and has us fall back in love with him. Read through the Old Testament. His people has done a thousand things to run away, a thousand ways in spitting in his face, but every time they repent and call out, it never ends with, and God just ignored them forever. He always comes through. He always recreates the ashes in our lives and makes something beautiful. And then I would love for you to take communion and remember the cost and the dynamic relationship that God has for us. And then lastly, we have a few people that have asked to pray uh, for, for us, you know, and they'll be standing by the two communion tables. And maybe this morning you feel like you're in slavery. Maybe this morning you, you know that in your heart you're running after other idols. Maybe this morning you're trying to call out to God for deliverance over something. And I would love for you to meet with God through one of the leaders at our church and to be prayed for. Father, we come to you and um, we thank you for having a real relationship with us, that you love us really strongly. (laughs) And we can't love someone strongly and not be totally crushed when they betray us and leave us. We've crushed you many times, God. We've made you angry and sad and And yet your love perseveres through all of that and always welcomes us home, always holds us, always extends again your arms. Through the pain, through the hurt, you extend your arms. To die on the cross, you extend your arms to welcome us home. And I know that there's some people in this room, not everyone, but some of us, man, we just, we really need to repent. Um, there's some sin that has just taken over and we're running after it. And I pray that today, Lord, you would especially work in those hearts and that we would call out to you and you would show us that you're better. You'll love us more purely. You will give us life and freedom. For others of us, we're doing great. And I pray, Lord, that in the good times, we wouldn't forget, we wouldn't forget you that we would take the blessings you have in our lives and that we would uh, worship you with them, we would serve you with them. And lastly, I pray for people here who are just exploring you and maybe a little, even a little confused. And I just pray, Lord, that you would have them think about what it means to be, for you to be the, their God and you to be, and them to be your, your child. That's a very real commitment. But it's one that you stick with through the thick and thin. Um, And yeah, so I just kind of lift up our congregation to you wherever we are, that we would meet with you authentically this morning and we would find that you love us where where we're at and that that love would inspire us to love you. In Jesus' name, amen.